Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London. And today we have almost a, um, a bumper edition because we're welcoming two guests to uh, celebrate the upcoming 100th birthday of the Cricketer magazine. Uh, Cricketer being the oldest established cricket title in the world. And I believe, I think our guests will confirm this, the most um, successful. With us are Hugh Turberville, who's the managing editor, but who's also writing the history of the magazine. It's a fascinating project, which will take in not only cricket history, but a great deal of literary history and, of course, a great deal of English history. And uh, with us as well is Simon Hughes, the, the magazine's editor, best known perhaps as a commentator and as the analyst with an uppercase A on many media. He's also been a journalist, he's the author of 10 books, and he had a long counter career with Middlesex and Durham. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. It's absolutely am- amazing that you've come on, and it's so fascinating the history of the Cricketer magazine, which I first I was subscribed to my, my, by my grandfather when I was went to prep school at the age of eight, and I've been reading it ever since. Will you be getting a telegram from the Queen? I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> actually, Captain Tom Moore is a is a big Cricketer reader and subscriber. Oh, is and, he really? Uh, so he 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 got his uh, telegram the knighthood other <laughs> things and the england team rather kindly gave him i think a blazer and a cap to commemorate his 100th birthday he's also now an honorary member of the mcc what we would like to do is is have a special dinner at lords to to celebrate it and and have it uh, maybe in the the new warner stand which of course is named after pelham warner who was the founder of the cricketer magazine now, we have with us Hugh Turberville, who is writing the history of the cricketer. Hugh, tell us, a li- tell us about the foundation of the cricketer and how that happened. Yeah, I was just going to say, the 1971 Jubilee edition of the cricketer I've got in front of me, and that's got um, messages from the Duke of Edinburgh, Ted Heath, who was Prime Minister, and the Australian Prime Minister, Robert Menzies. So we've got to deliver a similar line-up next April when we reach our, our hundred. So, yeah, the cricketer was the brainchild of Geoffrey Foster, the Kent and Worcestershire batsman. According to E.W. Swanton in his book Follow On, Geoffrey Foster told his friend Sir Pelham Warner at the end of a day's play at Lord's, in order to preserve the best interests of the game, someone like he should start a book devoted to cricket. Uh, sorry, a paper devoted to cricket. Note, paper, not magazine at that stage. And uh, Pelham Warner, known as Plum, of course, loved the idea. He was coming to the end of his uh, Middlesex playing days and have more time to devote to producing this paper. Now, Richard, am I right in thinking that this Foster character was the model for Mike in P.G. Woodhouse's schoolboy novels? Well, he was one of the famous Foster brothers, wasn't he? He wasn't actually the model. That was, I think, R.E. Foster, who was the best cricketer of them all, but he was, you know, he was the family that certainly inspired Mike. And tell us a bit, Simon Hughes, about Plum Warner, because he was an epic figure in the history, not just of a cricketer, but of course of English cricket as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an interesting character. He's a slightly controversial character in some ways, because he was born in the Caribbean 
And in the in those days, so the eighteen nineties, you actually weren't really supposed to play for England when you were born abroad. One of the the famous sort of first people who captained England and was then a selector, Lord Harris, who was born in Trinidad, actually excluded KS Ranjit Singhji from selection for England because he said he wasn't born in England because he was born in India. And uh, then the, the selection managed to sort of override that in the end. But of course, Lord Harris negligently forgot that he himself was born in Trinidad and he'd played for England <laughs> previously. So there's a lot of sort of hypocrisy through... The, 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 those sort of years and, and Plum Warner was born in the Caribbean as well in fact he captained England in the West Indies and was really impressed I think it was the first tour that England ever made to the West Indies before they were a test playing nation and and he because part I think you know that was induced partly by his uh, being born over there and uh, he was very impressed by the athleticism and the fielding actually in particular of the West Indies team in the sort of early 1900s and uh, he was a, a very nimble batsman, a, a, a captain uh, who then went on to captain England in Test cricket. Uh, but he was a, clearly he was passionate about the game, and he was a writer as well. So he wrote uh, a lot for a, a magazine or a paper then called The Sportsman. He also wrote a book, Cricket in Many Climes, which in which he proclaimed cricket's ability to forge international relations or soothe disputes. Uh, so that was in the early 1900s, and then gradually he contributed to to other publications, and eventually, as Hugh said, uh, helped to found the Cricketer magazine. And you know, just to sort of fill in the gaps, he wrote for the magazine. He still played until he was actually in his 50s. He pl- he still played for MCC, and he's probably most famous as the the manager of that famous Bodyline tour of the 1932-33. Uh, series when he we'll was come on, We'll come on to the... I want to go through this. Yeah, so all I was going to say is that I was, I was going to finish off by saying that, you know, he, he was a bit of a hypocritic, hypocritic figure because he uh, he was part of the... Man- he, he managed that team and sort of authorised the bodyline tactics but then uh, tried to apologise for them later. But we can, we can come on to that. So Hugh Turberville, Plum Warner was actually editor of The Cricketer from April 1921 to, until 1963. Huge innings, epic, you know. And juggling with other jobs because he was cricket correspondent at the Morning Post as well. I, sp- I mean, I suppose really, I mean, he wasn't hands-on sort of putting words on pages and, and opening up letters and things like that. I think he had um, other people to do sort of the, the dog's body stuff. Um, Arthur Langford was his assistant editor, but sort of did a lot of the legwork. So he was more sort of editor at large, I think, or, a, you know, shaping the editorial vision of, of the paper as they called it or the magazine but yeah he had other other many other fingers and many other pies what interests me a lot about the early years the first edition comes out 1921 and it follows not only the great war but the the great global spanish flu pandemic which killed more people in the great war the last wave of it was in 1920 i just wondered if this there was any hint of the impact of the war and the flu epidemic in in early editions of the cricketer. Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. No, I mean I, I know that um, the Second World War was more of a struggle keeping the thing going, keeping it coming out. And I know that um, that t- took its great toll on on cricketers and the early sort of tours after the war dealt with a lot of emaciated sort of cricketers <laughs> being only too happy to go off to foreign climes to eat proper food. But um, no, I'm not hugely aware of, of, of the impact of the First World War 
or Spanish flu on those early editions, no. The flu epidemic doesn't show up very much in wisdom either of those years. Reading a lot of cricket literature of the um, history in, in the 20s, you often detect a feeling that there were most, cricketers are almost trying to forget the Great War and the, and the sufferings, and they're trying to restore cricket as um, a sort of restoration of pre-war England. Is that a fair summary of what the cricketer was, was trying to do? Perhaps cricket was the great distraction, yeah, from the Great War. It is extraordinary, though, is if you think about it, that in the Great War, a million young men were killed. And so there it is. Just imagine bringing out a magazine today and when, when in the previous five years, a million people have been killed in, 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 on the Western Front. And it's, it is amazing the way in which... It's very fascinating, the fact that, that it wasn't a fi- feature in the early editions. You might have expected a series of profiles of the great players of the pre-war era who had um, died uh, fighting for their country. Of course, I mean, in those days, there were fewer distractions, weren't there? So things like papers, stroke magazines were what people did and what people had. I mean, there was no sort of TV, DVD, Netflix, uh, anything like that was there. So I suppose it was a um, receptive uh, market for these kind of things then. Hugh, that early edition, the first edition in April 21st, it's very much... I think you said is very much more of a, a newspaper than a magazine as it is now. I was intrigued to see the price, which was um, six old pence weekly. Um, that was roughly then the price of a pint of beer. And I just noticed the present monthly subscription rate is uh, works out at £3.75 per issue, which is, again, very roughly the price of a pint of beer now. I just wondered if the cricketer's price has been pegged to that of beer. Yeah, they, we're, we're, it's, it's called the Cricket Mag uh, Beer Index. No, it's not really. No. Um, but but uh, no, I mean, yeah, if you could get a good pint of beer for £3.75 in Weatherspoons or something, can't you? A bit pricier in other pubs in London. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting analogy, as you say. Yeah, interesting connection. That first edition, it um, seems to mix, you know, reporting, analysis. There's a bit of a performance manual in some places or performance advice and um, a lot of a couple of famous ex-players on the um, on the first page, uh, Archie McLaren and Gilbert Jessup. But I noticed that it um, that first edition asked readers for their contributions and their suggestions, and I get the impression that right from the beginning, the cricketer has always um, had a very strong relationship with its readers. And um, as we'll come to later, its readers have bailed it out on a couple of occasions. Yeah, well, Simon and I certainly have... Um made a policy of uh, listening very carefully to what the readers like. Um, I always think of Cubby Broccoli in the James Bond films, Roger Moore, give the readers what they want, give the, give the, the fans, the viewers what they want. But um, when Simon and I started about five years ago, with a guy, um, our boss was Guy Evans Tipping, who's not, not uh, working with us anymore, but we made a vow that we would uh, very much listen to what the readers want. We have reader surveys every year. We don't, you know, we make our own decisions, we're independent of it, but we certainly take on board what they want. And uh, I think the magazine possibly, without being unkind to people who went before me, kind of did veer off a little bit into what they thought would be successful, maybe commercially. But um, no, absolutely, we give the readers what they want. And and one of the messages that our readers want is that they want county cricket and lots of it. So... (laughs) Good for them, by the way. I um, can I as a, as a cricketer reader myself, I'm very keen. And one of the, I think, one of the shocking developments on the sports pages of the 
Telegraph, for instance, which ought to be the home of E.W. Swanson's paper, is the way that they've neglected county cricket in recent years. And cricketer, at least you keep up that valuable uh, tradition. Uh, Simon Hughes, I mean, one of the um, things, striking things of the very early editions of the cricketer is the great writers. You had Conan Doyle, A.A. Milne. I mean, you can't get more kind of people who are entrenched in English literary history than those two. Do you keep on that great literary tradition? I, I don't think we've quite got to that level. Uh, you know, I suppose, you know, what we want is sort of people like William Boyd, don't we? And uh, Salman Rushdie, someone like that, maybe, to, to if they're interested in cricket. I mean, those, those sort of characters. But I think we've tried to focus on getting the best writers on cricket that we can and certainly that we can afford. Someone like Michael Atherton, you know, is generally regarded as the best at the moment. Uh, he, he's not affordable and he's sort of exclusive to the Times anyway. So someone like that we, we haven't been able to get. But and, and that's one that the readers often ask for. But we've got Mike Brearley. We've had Paul Haywood writing this month in, in The Telegraph, uh, from, who, who's from The Telegraph, who's a, a very esteemed sports writer. Uh, we've also got, you know, very good columnists who've had you know a real career in in writing for newspapers people like Barney Roney and and also Mike Selvey who's who's now no longer the cricket correspondent of the Guardian so i think we've tried to to get in you know the best writers we've had Simon Barnes contributing quite a lot who used to be the the chief sports writer of the times we tried to, writer, no, yeah. my my objective always really uh, with i think we sort of slightly reinvented the mag as Hugh mentioned and my kind of uh, you know blueprint really was it sounds a bit odd, this, but it, it was actually Waitrose Supermarket in that, uh, you know, the quality of the ingredients at Waitrose is so good and it's a, it's a pleasure going round it, walking round it is a pleasurable experience as opposed to some supermarkets. So we wanted to make the cricketer have these quality ingredients and be a pleasure to leaf through, if you like. Uh, and hopefully we've got that. And, you know, we have to listen to the readers, as, as Hugh mentioned. And you, if you look at the modern media... You know, and we, I know we're jumping ahead here uh, in the sort of history, but the modern media has sort of become almost uh, kind of rooted to the idea of subscribers. Look at the Times, for instance, getting subscribers and getting a lot of numbers, The Guardian appealing to its readers for uh, contributions and, and subscriptions and so on. I think that is the model going forwards, uh, one that we perhaps discovered by accident, but which has been working for us. Hugh, the um, cricketer started an annual, didn't it? And it's very, well, it's first winter in 21, 22 and continued it for many years. And that was more ambitious, wasn't it? And um, that's where the sort of celebrity cricket writers come in for the first time, like like Conan Doyle and A.A. Milne, whom he mentioned, and others. And that cricket annual really becomes, I've seen quite a few of them. They're, They're sort of collector's items now, aren't they? Yeah, winter and spring annuals. Yeah, they were beautiful publications, weren't they? Did P.G. Woodhouse ever write for the cricketer? He loved cricket. He did. No, his name's not cropped up, I must admit. Um, He may have asked for too much money. (laughs) One figures that probably Conan Doyle and A.A. Milne didn't... I mean, these are top-dollar writers, and I guess that they didn't ask the cricketer for money, but P.G. Woodhouse was a little bit of a... He'd known for avoiding taxes, for instance, by living abroad. And um, now I want to move on to the 1930s now. And, and Simon, you were, you were just developing that theme when I cut you short, which is 
the enormous conflict of interest. It's a really fascinating period when Plum Warner was both the um, the editor of the Cricketer and England manager during the Bodyline series. Can you tell us about that? Well, it was extraordinary. I, I, I mean, it's uh, he was not really the prime mover in Bodyline. He recruited Douglas Jardine as captain without necessarily knowing what he had up his sleeve. And, uh, of course, Jardine, quite a sort of Machiavellian character, really, uh, then managed to, to, to get together a sort of small group of players who they think had spotted a weakness in Bradman's general makeup. And Donald Bradman at the time, 1930, just to give it a bit of context, 1930, John, Donald Bradman had made 974 runs in five tests against <laughs> England, totally uh, decimated all the bowlers. Uh, it's a world record run number of runs in a test series, still stands, uh, averaged 130 in that series. And so they needed to find a way to stop him. And the way they felt they'd identified was something I think probably Harold Larwood said he spotted in that 1930 series a little bit of fragility against the short ball. And so they conjured up this plan and it was Plum Warner who recruited Jardine and Jardine who then got together with Larwood, Vos and I think Arthur Carr from Knott's. And they sat down in, uh, I think at the Savoy actually, probably hosted by Plum Warner and hatched out this plan to annihilate Bradman by bowling body line, by bowling short balls into his body and with lots of fielders on the leg side. And then, of course, as you say, um, Plum Warner was also the correspondent on the tour. Uh, and, and so he tried to sort of distance himself from the tactics and had his comeuppance, really, when in that second famous test at Adelaide when uh, several injuries occurred. Bill Woodfall, the Australian captain, was hit by Larwood, a short ball. And the wicketkeeper Bert Oldfield was also felled by a severe bouncer by Larwood. There was a number of s- slight injuries. Not serious, actually, but, but slightly uh, problematic and nearly caused a riot on the field. Uh, also, Bradman got out cheaply. Not actually, if you look at the video, to a severely short ball, but one that was sort of at his waist, which he didn't play very well. But it clearly caused an absolute storm. It caused a huge diplomatic incident. And Warner, as the manager of the team, went into the Australian dressing room, you know, and famously tried to apologise to the Australians for the tactics, even though he'd sort of condoned them, and was told, given his marching orders by, you know, there's. There's only there are two teams out there. One of them is playing cricket, and one of them isn't, sort of thing. And get out, mate, sort of thing. And and so he he kind of got his dispatch uh, as a result. And you know it's funny, but in the end he was forgiven as a member of the kind of aristocracy and an establishment figure. He was forgiven for for that, even though it caused considerable ructions between Australia and England. And eventually, I just think it's an irony that in the five years later he was given his knighthood. And Larwood was given nothing. And he was the guy that, uh, you know, absolutely was the was the hero, really, was the match winner, was the series winner. He never played for England again. And in the end, was so felt so disenfranchised, he, he actually moved to Australia. Hugh, the cricketer seems to have had a rather schizophrenic attitude to body line or conflicted attitude, possibly because of Warner's multiple roles in it. Cricketer writer second slip, um, was Frank Mitchell, Attack body line bowling as a as a tactic, although he sort of disassociates that from Jardine in the England team. 
but a cricketer also, I think, saw claimed that body line injuries were 90 times out of 20 the Australian batsmen's faults. And they blamed the Australians, didn't they, for selecting so many players over 40 in the field who couldn't get out of the way of it. <laughs> I was first introduced to the whole body line, of course, with that um, cheesy Australian TV series, which depicted Plum Warner as um, a complete... Uh, completely against the tactic um so, as simon has explained it's the story is far more nuanced than that but um yeah i like the thing about frank mitchell aka second slip criticizing the tactic i imagine now sort of perhaps simon would be out there as um cricket correspondent and tour manager and i'd be back at the office and i'd, I'd dare to sort of criticize the tactic and simon, <laughs> would, be, simon would be on the boat and he'd only find out I'd written this article criticising the tactic when when he got back from at Tilbury Docks and opened up his cricketer magazine and was furious that his sidekick had, had, had criticised the tactic. But yeah, there, there, there was um, there was a was there was a range of opinions on the subject, wasn't there? In a way, it was arch hypocrisy by the Australians because they'd sort of started. The, the fast bowling, the short pitch bowling in the 1920s with uh, their fast bowler, McDonald. And so, you know, also, if you look at the footage, uh, some of the sort of rather uh, grainy footage of that series, there weren't that many terrible short balls bowled. I mean, obviously not every ball is covered, but quite a lot of the time they're getting in trouble against balls which weren't that short or actually that fast. So I think it was an unnecessary whinge you know we talk about whinging poms or the Aussies talk about whinging poms I think a lot of it was whinging Australians. Relations generally between Australia and England were very poor at the time weren't they? Uh, Australia was great was very much in debt to English financiers uh, a lot of people were unemployed in um, Australia and there was a lot of resentment against England generally and I think that fed into very strongly into the bodyline series uh, they resented you know the um, the tactics by the the English sort of colonial masters of Australia, which is how they'd come to be restored on in financial terms. Is that, course, do you think, related to, you know, Gallipoli and the, the, the loss of many Australians and New Zealanders in the First World War, a, a kind of very hatched or botched battle plan in the, the, the straits between Turkey and the, the, the Russian mainland? And uh, a lot of deaths resulted of Australians and New Zealanders, and of course they they remember that every day with Anzac Day, and and of course and every time Australia come to England on tour for an Ashes series, they so, often uh, go and visit the, the, the graves of, of Gallipoli, don't they? Of course, it's also worth bearing in mind that the it's not just that the young Australian New Zealanders, though they were on the beaches at Gallipoli, but they very much remember that the British general commanding was on a boat offshore. To, to, to move on from the, um, to the even more momentous event, more momentous than Bodyline, which took place in the 1930s, and that, of course, was the recruitment of E.W. Swanton, one of the most uh, uh, serious cricket writers of the second half of the 20th century. Tell, tell us about E.W. Swanton and the cricketer, Simon. It, well, what a character. Um, he was Newtonian. Uh, he, I don't think he was a particularly good player, actually. Are you sure he was an Etonian? I'm not certain that... I always see him as somebody who might have passed himself off as an Etonian, but I, <laughs> without actually having gone there. Well, he always <laughs> talked about Eton. I think he was minor public school. Was he? Cranley Prep. Cranley, yeah, that's... But yes, but, he, but easily mistaken for an Etonian, yeah. 
Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? I used to talk to him sometimes from his home in Sandwich on the the golf course there. And he was very, um, obviously, hugely, I'd say a snob, really. You know, he's a huge character, loved the game, uh, loved himself perhaps even more in a way, certainly loved the sound of his own voice. Um, I think he was, although he was an incredibly uh, respected figure, and actually I, as a sort of kid of sort of 10, I used to listen to his summaries at the end of the day's play on Test Match Special in the 1970s, and they were very polished, but they were sometimes a bit myopic. And I think he, he basically was a bit of a snob, really, who looked down his nose on commoners and, you know, people who perhaps hadn't been to public school or didn't do the thing in the right way. I always remember actually once having a... Because he was a the cricket cross under the Telegraph for many years. And uh, he, we used to have these meetings at the Telegraph uh, when he was just a columnist. He'd stop being the, the cricket correspondent. And we used to have these sort of lunches. And on one occasion, you know, the sort of informal lunches with the sports editor and a couple of columnists, Michael Parkinson used to go, and, and Swanton was there as well. And I wasn't a big fan of, uh, a, you know, very smart dress. And he was... And so I'd turn up and I didn't have a tie on. And he'd say, the first thing he'd say was, Hughes, do you know you can buy a tie from these shops called Tyrac? I really think you should dress <laughs> properly. But I, what, what I would also say about him, actually, was he, he was a little bit of a mentor to me and actually uh, liked the way I put colour into my pieces when I was writing from abroad especially. Uh, he, he used to say, cricket is not played in a vacuum. Uh, so all that colour writing is, is really good. I, I really enjoy it. So, you know, he did have a um, a very good uh, approach and attitude to writing, but he sort of felt you had to come from the right background. He was also the same as my grandfather in the Burma Siam Railway. So, And judging by what happened to my grandfather and what he was like after the war, I wouldn't, I, it's incredible, really, that E.W. Swanson sort of got on with things after the war and achieved so much, I would say. He had a terrible war. He wrote about it himself yeah. uh, in Wisden and then later at um, some lengths in his autobiography. And his um, one thing that got him through the war was um, he was allowed to keep one copy of the 1939 Wisden and it, um, he shared it among his fellow prisoners of war. And it was a major, it really it could be said to be a factor in their survival. Mm. My granddad's job was to burn the bodies of his friends who died of cholera and... Uh, it was just uh, must have taken its toll on Mr. Swanton, but uh... one other little bit of trivia about him is that his uh, his PA, who you would always have to speak to first before you could speak mm. to him, was Daphne Benno, the lady who uh. eventually married Richie Benno. Uh, she was his first sort of assistant, and she used to sit in his house in Sandwich and do all his correspondence and everything. Did she used to fix him a gin and tonic at five o'clock when Probably. he was doing transports, yeah. Or, or a, a glass of Chardonnay, maybe. I quite like the idea of that. So come over and bring me a gin and tonic. The paper ran into financial troubles in the 1930s, didn't it? And um, it had to move to the suburban home of the Langfords in Surbiton, in um, suburban London, didn't it? Uh, it's rather right. a fascinating place to bring out a great cricket paper. They moved out of the offices of the Morning Post and moved to the Langford's home in Surbiton. And uh, Arthur carried on pulling it all together and his wife, Meg, worked on subscriptions. And then E.L. Roberts used to drive 
the magazine or the pages to the printers in Bermondsey. No disrespect to Surbiton, but you don't think of it as the, the home of great cricket literature. Well, during lockdown, my computer's here in Kosh Alton, so and Simon's yeah. in Chiswick. So True. we obviously didn't use the office, so Kosh Alton and Chiswick carried the, <laughs> carried the fort. Or carried the, yeah. A regular contributor to the um, cricketer was Sir Hume Gordon, who was a big-name industrialist, but also a great cricket devotee and an amateur cricket statistician, and he wrote... At the beginning of the war, an absolutely sort of wonderful editorial, didn't he? He did. Uh, Hitler permitted us almost to complete an exceptionally interesting season. We were perhaps lucky to have enjoyed almost a complete season's cricket, as for weeks past we've been listening to the flapping of the wings of the monster, and his shadow was around us and above us. When shall we see stumps pitched again? Oh, gosh. And actually, to continue... England has now begun the grim test match with Germany. We all echo the complete confidence of the Prime Minister as to the ultimate victory. But we do not wish merely to win the ashes of civilization. We want to win a lasting peace. That's a great piece of writing at a momentous time in British history. Hugh Turberville, moving on to the 1950s, you seem to regard that as having been rather a a dur period, a bit of a C.J. Taveray innings in the 1950s. Yes, the average age of the directors, uh, Plum Warner, Buns Cartwright, Gerald Crutchley and Arthur Langford, all approaching their 70s. And um, Stephen Chalk, who's written a huge amount of lovely books, Set told me that when in his research for his books, the cricketer he found had not been very vibrant in the 50s. It was dull to look at and did not contain a great deal of good writing. Uh, in my modern update, I've likened it to sort of a, a middle episode in a Netflix 10-parter, you know, episode six, where the characters sort of take stock and sit around. And it did leave a bit of an opening in the market, actually, for another um, title called Playfair Cricket Monthly, which came along and probably injected a bit of vim into the cricketer and a rival was perhaps needed and uh, yeah that reinvigorated things a little bit the 60s though were a very interesting decade in the in the paper's life weren't they uh, culminating in takeover by an entrepreneurial publisher and a former um, cricket captain of, of Somerset uh, Ben Brocklehurst can you tell us a bit about him and the, the changes he brought in Yes, yeah, so, uh, a book company called Hutchinson uh, bought it. And their chairman, R.A.A. Holt, had played for Sussex. Uh, but after two or three years, it became apparent that that wasn't bringing in the, the money that um, Hutchinson had hoped. And uh, I think Ben Brocklehurst was working for a company called Mercury House. I think they might be involved with Hutchinson. But anyway, he, he left Mercury House and took the cricketer as a redundancy payment and took it in-house, I think maybe to his house in Hampshire or so on and, and ran a bit of a, a pet project and, and again appealed to readers for a bit of money and tried to get some some money involved but he carried it on sort of almost single-handedly really I'm sure his, his wife was involved too but um, yeah Swanton was still there as editorial director and Brocklehurst's big idea was to get these sort of competitions involved to bring in extra money and, and uh, Tony Windlaw and Henry Lewis were also behind this Cricketer Cup which was a knockout competition for old boys of public schools and then in 72 the cricketer village cup started or village cup started and that's um, celebrating its 50th anniversary in the, the village cup is a fantastic 
the cricketer cup comes over as rather sort of um, um, smug middle class and and snobbish, whereas the village cricket cup is a fantastic thing. Yeah, it yeah. is actually. And and I, funnily enough, I was speaking to um, one of the finalists for this year, the Reverend uh, of the local church in Redbourne in Hertfordshire, and Redbourne have got to the final at their first entry. Uh, they weren't able to enter the competition before because they were slightly too large because there were quite strict rules about the Village Cup and I think you have to be a village of less than 5,000 people and they were slightly over that but the, the rules have been changed, adjusted slightly and so Redbourne were able to qualify for it and they have got to the final and Redbourne it, it has had cricket played on the common since 1666 no. The club yeah. itself, uh, you know, started in 1820, and one of the founding members of the club was Lord Frederick Beauclerk, who's this sort of real scallywag character from the 1820s who captained England and rigged matches and so on. Uh, so he was a, a bit <laughs> yes. of a controversial character, but, you know, characters abound in village cricket, and Redbourne is absolutely the epitome of what you want a, a little village where the cricket club is almost the centre of the community uh, two brothers open the batting you know all the uh, the players come from the local area from the Colts that, that, that have been uh, coached there and there are so many other clubs with great little stories that the, the, their, their opponents in the final Colwall uh, have a beautiful ground with the backdrop of the Malvern Hills so you know it just encapsulates England, doesn't it? Really, uh, the Village Cup and gives so many recreational cricketers the chance, the opportunity for a once in a lifetime match at Lords to, to play in the final. So it is an amazing tournament. This year's final is—is is it going to take place? Is COVID an issue with getting all those villagers? You know, is that what that, as you say, unfortunately, it's got to be behind closed doors, but. Uh, but what? all the teams are the players of the teams. Obviously, will will be able to play at Lords. I mean, can't they wait? I mean, look, Lords nineteenth. Look, it's just coming up. It's the once in a lifetime. Lords is a big place. It's, it can hold twenty thousand people. Why can't five hundred villagers be allowed to come and have a look at it? It's that horrible word, insurance. Um, that's the one that you can't overcome in this case. Uh, it's all a, anyway, what a wonderful story. And it sounds like it's the 200th anniversary of uh, Redbourne, did you say? Nearly, yeah, not far off. Yeah, what a gorgeous the story. ...that's run this year, and it's one of only nine games to be held at Lords. And what I love about the Village Cup is the geographical spread of, of a lot of the winners. Certainly the first two years, Troon of Cornwall won it. Fro is it Froiki, Fruki of, of Fife in Scotland? Won it in 85. St Fagans of Glamorgan... March wheel of Cluid, so it's real good sort of great geographical spread of, of teams who have won it. That's um, so encouraging. Tell us a little bit about that lovely man, that great cricket writer and commentator, Christopher Martin Jenkins, who was uh, editor of The Cricketer in the 1980s. Well, I knew him quite well um, because uh, he, I suppose he covered the game very, very comprehensively in the late 70s when I started playing county cricket uh, he was the, 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 a totally recognisable figure stick thin always a little bit late hurrying somewhere uh, but very earnest and enthusiastic character uh, about the game passionate about the game married to the game you'd probably say and uh, he actually gave me my first writing opportunities. Um, he said, "Look, you, you know, you're part of an interesting team at Middlesex. Um, you know, I know you've been to Durham University. 
he didn't say so therefore you can write write but he sort of implied that you know what had you fancy doing some writing and I I had a go in about the early 80s and he encouraged me to write sort of dressing room stuff you know from it was called from the inside this column in the cricketer in about 1983, and he was a very, very encouraging character. I mean, it famously always rushed up the stairs uh, for his BBC commentary stint two minutes after he was supposed to be on air, and there was all <laughs> sorts of commotion you could always hear when you know he was sort of fiddling with his earphones and headphones and microphones and so on to, to get ready. But he had just a beautiful way with words. Uh, he actually, you know, he was you know very educated and very articulate and he sounded serious but actually he had a fantastic sense of humour he was a very funny guy incredibly compelling uh, a wonderful man very very uh, certain type of Englishman wasn't he a sort of prep school mastery in a way yeah uh, he, he arrived at the cricketer in 68 as assistant editor after Cambridge first job in journalism I think uh, obviously went on to bigger and better things, went to the BBC as cricket correspondent and Telegraph, and then he was recruited by the Times, wasn't he? But I think he carried on with the cricketer. Uh, he was the editor when I fell in love with the magazine personally in about the mid-80s. Hmm. How did you pay your contributors? Because there's always been a financial issue. You were telling me a while ago that Trevor Bailey, the, who was a great cricket writer, obviously all-rounder for England, he was rewarded with cases of carrot absolutely he didn't want to payments to go through his books so uh yeah carrot appeared on his doorstep every so often um i think there was an element of uh, not paying people i've got a letter here to christopher martin jenkins in 1971 from ew swanson at his home in sandwich agreeing that tony pawson uh would be the best man to take over the coverage of club cricket and write some personality pieces and then it says, as to be, I'm afraid you know our methods, Watson. You'd have to get them for love, but it occurs to me you might combine this with a BBC feature which could give the victim something. So, um, <laughs> no money. We do pay our writers now, it has to be added. <laughs> Hugh and Simon, it strikes me, looking back over the sweep of the cricketer's history, it seems to have a um, certain historic strength. It's very good at recruiting talent. Um, sometimes not even sometimes free talent. It um, covered women's cricket well, I think, by the standards of uh, the decades it was writing in. gave It was quite generous to women's cricket. I think it still is now. Uh, as we mentioned, it's got a very um, strong relationship with its readers. It's always very interesting to read the the letters in the um, the cricketer and the small ads. And I think one other strength is what I call its eclectic coverage. It isn't. Um, just test cricket um, and county cricket, though it's very strong on county cricket, but there's a real effort to reach down to local cricket and um, and even occasional you know topics which aren't cricket at all. Would you agree with that? Is there anything else that is there anything I've missed out as uh, you know the, the cricketer's strengths? If I may go first, yeah, cr- cricket. We've, we cover cricket at all levels: school, recreational. We have a dedicated women's section every month. We had Rachel Hayo Flint on the cover years ago. It's always been a bit of the, of the, the paper, the magazine, a record a little bit, hasn't it? I mean, it, um, Swanson used to write notes on Isingari most issues, I think. Um, so an eclectic mix. A bit of a niche subject, we, that. <laughs> we always have a joke, it's a bit of an eclectic mix. But uh, 
and, and but we're really proud of the letters page. I mean, three pages of letters every month, but brilliant letters. I think it's, they always say, don't they, there's a sign of a good publication, a strong letters page. I think really proud of our letters and I struggle to get them down to 3,000 words, actually, from, I have about 10,000, we have 10,000 words every month to whittle down to 3,000. I think um, that the problem that, in a way, the Cricketer magazine encapsulates is there are so many different formats of the game and so, you know, it's played in so many different places. You know, so we're doing club, school, county, international, women's. Trying to kind of cover all those well is, is difficult, but it's, it's a great, uh, in a way, Philip uh, for cricket that it has so many different formats and locations uh, so while it is demanding to get them all into a magazine it does show the great breadth of the game. Very much endorse what you say about um, readers letters they're very cogent uh, very um, eclectic mix one that particularly caught my eye recently because it suggested a sort of new direction for the cricketer was from Mr Michael Brown and um he suggested that the cricketer might set itself out to hold the ECB to account a little more formally than it does. And um, uh, is, is that a um, is that a direction you might you might take the um, the cricketer into? Uh, I, w- without agenda, I mean, I think we I think we we look at the ECB and and, and judge everything they do on on, on its merits, and there'll be people who like what they're doing. And, in our magazine and people who won't like they were doing yeah so we've got no agenda to sort of attack the ecb but um we're certainly um there to to to, to judge if what if what they're doing is is good for the game and there's people in our magazine who think that the hundred is a good thing and there's people who think it's a bad thing and a, and a folly the majority think it's a bad thing don't they well the readers yeah but i, mean, I think i think george de bell uh, the columnist is good at picking up on certain um, administrative things uh, he, he's been conducting a fairly sort of tense um, little duel with Colin Graves over the last couple of years uh, which nearly ended up in the courts but that wasn't a piece he wrote for the cricketer he's the just resi- retired as chairman of the That's ECB right. yeah. and he actually has put a lot of money into the game particularly to Yorkshire and uh, he's one of those people who means well but sometimes puts his foot in it by saying stupid things I, I just think that it, you know, we should, uh, of course, hold the, the board and the administrators to account. But, you know, they, they are, uh, uh, as with the magazine, you know, they've got so many areas to cover. They've got so many things to deal with. And the, the fundamental problem with professional cricket is it's, it's unsustainable, really. 360, 400 professional cricketers, the, the, the game doesn't really generate enough money to give them all a good living and to give them all a stable living and therefore uh, a lot of the people at the ECB are uh, you know just working overtime trying to find the money to be able to pay probably too many players and too many counties and that's if that sounds a bit depressing it's not meant to I don't mean that these counties should go out of existence but it's just that to, to be able to sustain that number of teams and that number of players is very demanding and they're doing their best as as we are at the Cricketer magazine to cover the game in in all its different forms. To be positive, I think ECB this year in bringing a wonderful set of cricket matches, international tests. I mean, fabulous cricket season they've given us, and actually, should we should uh, all be drinking to them and thanking them for what they've done this this summer. 
I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, the, the cash reserves of the ECB have gone down from 73 million to 17 million. And, and a lot of this is the politics of the, of the new competition, the 100 that they've had to persuade the counties to, to have this new 100 ball competition, not involving the counties, trying to get the turkeys to vote for Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, and paying the counties 1.3 million a year to agree to do this 100 competition. So the cash reserves have gone down. So it's these kind of decisions that we're, we're looking at. You know, is there a cheaper alternative to the 100? Could they just have had an eight-team county T20 Super League instead that would have co- wouldn't have cost so much money? So that's what we try and do. We, tr- we try and, and look at these decisions. Are there examples, um, Simon and Hugh, of where your agenda has been uh, picked up by the, the, the newspapers? Kind of thing. We did the we did the blue we did a blueprint issue, which was yeah. um, mapping out a, a roadmap for English cricket in terms of fitting all the competitions in. Um, we went back to Dolavira fifty years after the event to have a look at that. We did a special issue black cricketers and a celebration of their role in in English cricket. What else have we done, Simon? Powerlist that that caused quite a lot of interest, didn't it? Yeah, that was a bit more of a. Uh, a kind of marketing exercise, I suppose, to, to draw attention to the magazine, but it caused a lot of interest because we ended up ranking commentators and writers and players by their influence, uh, giving them a 1 to 50 kind of ranking, and that caused a lot of uh, annoyance amongst journalists who thought they should be higher up the list and one or two administrators. That stirred the pot a little bit. Who were your top five um journalists in the, well, on the list. Um, it, I mean, it, it, it's changed a bit with from year to year. We've done it every two years, but um, Mike Atherton always gets up uh, up there high. Michael Vaughan slipped down a bit and was a bit annoyed. Because <laughs> it's good fun, yeah. Right, the first year, I insisted that Simon be in it. And it wasn't Simon's fault. I, I said, look, you're the editor of The Cricketer, you're the analyst, TV, the newspapers, blah, blah, blah. X-Men. And I, I, I insisted Simon be in it. And then he was picked up by um, a columnist of the Daily Mail who really who criticised Simon for putting himself in this list. And I, 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 <laughs> it wasn't Simon's fault, it was my fault. I, you know, I could have always obviously uh, agreed to take it out. Simon, so. Anyway, yeah. You are very influential, Simon. Down with the Daily Mail. Who was this wretched columnist of the oh, Daily you, Mail? I'm sure you can guess. <laughs> a diarist. A diarist. You must know him. So where did you come in the where did you come in the list to which the Daily Mail uh, took such exception? Uh, in in the thirties somewhere. So not about right. That, not I mean, far too. You were much more influential than that, Simon. <clears throat> you I, should have seen the conversations in the Channel Five commentary box with Boycott Nicholas and Vaughan. Unfortunately, Mark Nicholas didn't make the list at all, and he was really cross. I bet he was. He has a very high opinion of himself. He wouldn't have liked that a bit. What about Jeffrey Boycott? Well, yeah, he was in. He'd slipped down a bit um, for, after a couple of years. He'd gone down into the thirties, and he he wasn't that pleased. We haven't done one this year, so it'd be interesting to pick it up next year. Yeah, post COVID. Is there is there a, a mathematical formula for for the rankings, Hugh? Is there you know like the Deloitte's rankings for Test cricketers, or is it is it purely subjective? There were six of us. We got uh, George DeBell to come in. We got Jared Kimber to come in. Simon, me, Guy, the boss of, of that time, and James Coyne, the assistant editor. And, and we sat down and mulled it over over lunch, as, as you do. <laughs> Just, I'm still laughing at the idea of Mark Nicholas's anxiousness. <laughs> Simon and Andy Hugh, I'd 
detect a slight, very much a, a change of note in the in the cricketer, almost an antidote to the possible conservatism and snobbery of early uh, of early issues. Um, and I detect a rather more radical agenda in terms of trying to promote the game among disadvantaged communities, and also in the uh, coverage he gave last month to. Um, experiences of racism and discrimination in English cricket and the underrepresentation of the of non-white cricketers in English cricket. Well, funnily enough, it, it goes back, doesn't it, uh, neatly to Plum Warner, who, who I mentioned at the start uh, was really uh, a, a passionate advocate of black cricketers, uh, having been brought up in the Caribbean himself and, and did uh, some campaigns around that. And so that's what we did I mean, I think we were buying into the sort of zeitgeist of the time. Uh, it had all just cropped up with that uh, awful killing of, of George Floyd and, you know, the, 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 the uh, gathering of momentum of, of that sort of campaign, that, that, that whole thing. We got wind of the fact that the ECB were going to put Black Lives Matter sort of emblems on the players' shirts. I, I also had a, a sort of passion for it myself because of having played in the Middlesex team of the 1980s, which had five black players in it. Yes, and it I, I, they, they were an incredible influence. You know, they made the game fun. They, in a way, I think that the black cricketers of the sort of late 70s and early 80s and through that period... Norman Cowens, Roland Butcher... All the, you know, even the yeah. ones that, that were, came from the Caribbean as well... Um, they, they lifted Wayne county Daniels, cricket. Daniels, I'm just trying to think who else there were. Well, yeah. there, there were so many. Um, yeah. But they lifted county cricket from a sort of rather moderate, rather moribund operation, colourless in the 70s, if you pardon the pun, to, you know, really vibrant 1980s, which I think was the sort of second golden age of cricket. And there were so many brilliant black players. There aren't nearly as many now. And there are various reasons for that, which we wanted to look at. And, and one of them is definitely that there is this unconscious bias. And, uh, um, you know, maybe many of, the, of, of our readers are experiencing that or feeling it. And it was a question of, of bringing that to the fore, really. Uh, so we had a, a round the table forum. We had Dean Wilson, the the, the correspondent of the Daily Mirror, who is uh, uh, has Jamaican extraction. You know, we had a lot of different uh, viewpoints sort of fed in there to encapsulate the the mood of the time, the mood of the moment. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm England, the England team of the eighties is my team, and so I love Defratus, Malcolm, Chris Lewis, Gladstone Small, and it, it is sad that. Uh, we don't have these great black players anymore in, in county cricket. And um, Dean Wilson did a very fair, balanced job of analysing why it was. Um, and yes, as Simon says, there is some sort of, there is bias there and, and endemic sort of latent racism, I guess. But um, I think black cricketers make up 3% of the population, Dean said, and, and, and it, that's dropped off now, the, below that in terms of numbers of, of players. Uh, maybe the sort of Caribbean... Influence is waning now with the youngsters of today, and young black cricketers um, have, have tended have tended to drift away from the game now, and and the attractions of Premier League football and basketball, I think, have have taken over. So, Dean's piece was uh, an, an exercise in in discussing how how we can re-engage the next generation, or the, this generation of um, young black players in this country, and 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 something we all want to see. So. That's why we did that issue, yes. 
Um, Simon, you've got a new book out. I think it's your 10th, uh, co-authored with uh, Manoj uh, Badali, who's the owner of the Rajasthan Royals in the um, uh, Indian Premier League. And um, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? It seems to confirm a lot of the very positive messages we've heard about T20 from earlier guests. The reason why I have written this book with Manoj in a way was to try and draw attention to the fact that T20 has been largely good for the game. And I don't necessarily mean just from a playing point of view. And obviously there are negatives like putting test cricket under pressure, uh, sometimes marginalising players who prefer T20 over test cricket and first class cricket and so on, and rather destabilising the the global calendar. But I think the the good things that it's done, uh, apart from improving the the standard of the game in in terms of uh, repertoire, fielding, bowling variety, aggressive batting, etc. It's speeded the game up. It's made it more exciting, definitely. Even test cricket, if you think back to Ben Stokes' brilliant innings at Headingley last year, that really married uh, accumulative test match batting with T20 batting towards the end and made it uh, that the event incredibly exciting. But what the T20 has also done is two things. It's brought a lot more money into the game and that goes back to something I said earlier about the, the sustainability of cricket. It's a long game. It takes a lot of space. It takes a lot of people. Uh, these stadia that uh, stage cricket are only full 20 times a year or something. So that leaves 330 days of the year or so where they're empty. So cricket has to find ways of, of, of being sustainable. T20's made it sustainable by putting it on at a time when people can watch, by putting it on uh, in a short uh, format so that people can get home afterwards and they haven't got to spend all day or take their time off work or take holiday to watch it. And also it's brought in new money. It's brought in uh, in private finance, more sponsors, broadcast income, which has enabled uh, other countries to start playing uh, international cricket. So now there are 75 countries playing T20 international cricket. Well, you look at 20 years ago, there were probably only about 10 teams playing actual international matches, and now there are 70. So it really has globalised the game, and this book really talks about that and how cricket and sport can build on the lessons of the IPL, which is now a third of the cricket's world economy. Uh, makes up about $600 million a year in terms of income to players and administrators and and so on. Uh, And it's really trying to encapsulate that and what cricket can do, how it's had to evolve with COVID, uh, how the game can keep evolving and keep innovating to make it uh, attractive to the global population. So, I mean, in the September issue, it seems to me that you're dealing with a new phenomenon in in three different ways, and that's the phenomenon of cricket without crowds. And we may have to live with that for some time, not just after COVID. We, you particularly in the September issue, point to a a different way in which audiences are receiving cricket digitally that creates a new role for cricketers as um, content factories for digital spectators. Would you like to say a little bit about this this new model, which um, you think you've identified, and you know how it's going to f- impact on cricket in the future? Well, it's a huge thing actually in baseball, where uh, you get supporters all around the US who can't necessarily attend the games of their favourite team, or they can't get a seat because it's full. 
so they they follow their their team online uh, with very sophisticated streaming services, which offer not only the coverage of the the game but also lots of stats and lots of other information and highlights and so on. And I think as people's time uh, is becomes more scarce, uh, b- b- being able to consume their favourite team through highlights, packages and things is going to become more the norm. As far as playing uh, the game behind closed doors and without a crowd, I mean, actually, a lot of us sports people are used to that anyway, aren't we? I mean, sport is really not there for the spectators. It's sort of there for the players. And uh, the the players will go out and play, whether there's one man or a dog or 20,000 people there. And actually, we've seen that with this test series this summer, that it actually doesn't really matter that there's nobody there. It's the contest. It's the duel between the batsman and the bowler and the England and Australian teams and doing well for your team, which is the focus. And you actually don't really notice the absence of a crowd. It is going to carry on for quite a while. And so I think the the way that digital enables people to communicate with each other and share content and uh, you know share their insights, we'll get more dressing room coverage probably of you know what players actually do behind the scenes and I, I think actually it might you know welcome a new age of, of more accessibility to players and understanding their characters rather than just a two-minute sort of stand-up uh, interview in front of a, an advertising board which tends to be a bit stilted we're going to get closer to these players as a result of covid and maybe that that'll help the game grow even more absolutely fascinating and so that's a a a positive thing a a benefit in a way of the awful tragedy uh uh, which we've all endured with covid um hugh and simon i I can't say what a pleasure how enriching this conversation has been thank you very much indeed to both of you that goes for me too um simon and hugh thank you for being with us not at all yeah no it's been absolute pleasure to be on and um things are did look like they were sort of getting back to normal again now and the cricketer office has, has reopened again and um, the wheels of, of, of business are slowly turning round. So we're just waiting to see uh, how second and third, fourth lockdowns affect things. But um, pleasantly pleased to say that the cricketers survived the first lockdown and seems to be going well. And um, and and, re- and our, our readers would, would del- have been writing in to say how delighted they are that um, with some of the content, we did a book special, the greatest cricket books ever. And um, so it's kind of inspired us really to, it's given us a bit more time to, to think about sort of themes and, and topics perhaps, you know, when there was no play um, and, and we've had lots more, lots more thinking time to, to come up with stuff. The, the Cricketer magazine is, is like the game itself, the great survivor. Yeah, it is, and uh, all the better for it. Simon and Hugh, thank you once again so much for being with us. Uh, and it remains for me to say goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in south-east London. Goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in Wiltshire. Goodbye from Hugh in Kosh <laughs> And goodbye from Simon in Chiswick Stroke Shepherd's Bush. <laughs>